Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Last April, 18-year-old Anthony Vega Cruz was driving to get dinner when he was pulled over by police. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A collision course between a teenager and an officer leads to a fatal shooting. We'll look at racial profiling and policing in New England, where a disproportionate number of black and brown drivers are pulled over for traffic violations. We don't have any racial, uh, um, any officers here that are racially profiling. And a relative claims a New Hampshire woman is having a psychotic break and she's forced to go to the hospital. I definitely did not need to go. I did not want to go. And the next thing I know, they're stabbing me in the arms with some kind of sedative. I don't know. Stab, stab. Next thing I'm waking up in St. Joseph's Hospital. She was there for 20 days, something a class action lawsuit says is illegal. Plus, Portuguese-American comedians use their backgrounds as material. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. On average, police are more likely to pull over a person of color than a white person. That's what the data shows. Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Vermont have all taken steps to reduce this disparity, but these stops still happen every day. And that higher number of stops leads to more encounters between civilians and police. Last April, Anthony Vega Cruz was shot and killed by police in Wethersfield, Connecticut, after cops tried to pull him over. He was only 18 years old. A new documentary from Connecticut Public called Collision Course tells the story of Vega Cruz and the officer who shot him, and a caution that we're going to hear some recordings that listeners might find disturbing. WNPR reporter Vanessa De La Torre is here to talk about the documentary. Vanessa, welcome back to Next. Thanks, John. First of all, why is the documentary called Collision Course? You know, we wanted to learn more about the young driver who was shot. He was only 18 years old, and we wanted to learn more about the young police officer who shot him. So as we started to look into more deeply into their lives, you know, we kind of started seeing some systemic and personal issues that came into play. And so once you started analyzing that, it looked like they were on a collision course when their lives intersected on April 20th. Uh, This young man uh, who was killed, Anthony Vega Cruz, was known to his friends as Chulo. Tell us a bit more about him. Yeah. So, you know, he grew up in Hartford um, for pretty much all his life. And one of the things we learned about him is that his mother died um, about seven years ago. So when he was a boy, she died of cancer. And so what we learned is that, you know, that really affected him deeply. It's not something he liked to talk about as he got older, but people who know him talked about that. And, you know, he dealt with some issues at school, you know, some skipping of class. You know, his dad, Jose Vega, you know, he talked to us about some of those struggles in Hartford and, in, you know, growing up and, and living in a somewhat tough neighborhood. And so it was just about six months before the shooting that the dad decided to move his family to, you know, kind of get out of that tougher neighborhood and, and have this, you know, suburb to live in. Right. So Jose Vega is saying that when he first, you know, saw the house, and this is, you know, a public housing uh, home, 
he saw it as like a mansion and he thought this was like the best place to raise his son. Um, and then we all know what happened afterward. There's another incident that you report on in which it seems as though a car that he is driving is stopped by police. But maybe you can talk us through this a little bit because it's a very interesting and important part of the story. Right, John. So a couple of weeks before the April 20th incident that led to the shooting, we know of a traffic stop that happened in Weathersfield in which the same vehicle that Chulo had and, you know, the same license plate uh, was pulled over uh, just after midnight. And so as the officer, and you can see this in dash cam, as the officer walks out to approach the car, the car takes off. And so we don't know for sure if this was Chulo, uh, Anthony Vega Cruz. Um, we're fairly confident, but we did talk to the girlfriend about this, Stephanie Santiago. And she says that, you know, her, her boyfriend, Chulo, mentioned this um, happened, that the, the police tried to pull him over in Wethersfield, and he got away. Vanessa, the other main character in this story is the police officer who shot uh, Anthony. His name is Leo Ulysier. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about him. Sure. So Officer Ulysier, he's known by, you know, friends and family as Junior. Uh, grew up in Hartford, you know, the son of a very hardworking Haitian family. You know, the people we talk to who know the family say they're just like really nice people, and they include Junior among those people. Parents wanted a better education for their son, and so that's when we hear that they moved to Weathersfield. You know, they also saw Weathersfield as a, as a better place for that, a suburb just across the border from Hartford. And so Ulysier, um, you know, after high school, he enters the Connecticut Air National Guard, is interested in, you know, public service, uh, also is in the Air Force Reserve. And then after the military, or actually during the military service, he also becomes a police officer. And a police officer in, in a nearby town, Manchester, which is another suburb of Hartford. And in one of the earlier incidents that you have in this documentary, um, it certainly points to something in Officer Ulysses' past that we should know as, as we think about what happened to, uh, to, to Chulo on that day. Maybe you can describe the video that you, that you have in the documentary and what happens. Sure. So one of the aspects that's pretty important in this whole story is that there are some instances where supervisors express concern about his performance, his police tactics under situations that are considered stressful. And so I'm just going to play some video here. This is of a dash cam. This was about uh, a year and a half before the incident in Weathersfield. They have pulled over a minivan. And so this driver in the minivan was suspected of getting into some sort of disturbance at the local mall. And so Officer Ulysses is in this dash cam. And so he comes out of the vehicle with his gun drawn already, comes toward the driver, and he's shouting. Turn off the car! Turn off the car! Turn off the car! Turn off the car! You can see that he still has his gun drawn and pointed at the driver as he then attempts to open the driver's side door. So, Vanessa, we've now met the two main characters in our story, uh, the young man who shot and the police officer who shot him. Uh, let's move forward to the day, April 20th, uh, when these two lives come together. Maybe you can tell us what happens next. Right. So, you know, one of the people, as you mentioned, we interviewed is Stephanie Santiago, his girlfriend. And she says that, you know, leading into that day, it was a Saturday, uh, late afternoon, early evening. She was concerned about him driving because the night before he had been involved in some sort of you know, incident, accident where his headlight was out. And so surrounding all of this is the fact that we learned that through our reporting is that Anthony Jose Vega Cruz did not have a driver's license. And so leading into this stop on April 20th, 
you know, we know those were factors that were in his mind that he knew that if he was stopped again, um, he was going to be facing some serious trouble. And so we see in the tape, initially, you know, his car is pulled over. And similar to the earlier stop a couple of weeks prior, once the officer, a different officer, Officer Peter Salvatore, gets out of his car, once he almost reaches the vehicle, we see the vehicle take off. And so as we watch the dash cam, Elysier joins in from down the road, and you can see that he has his gun drawn, gets out of the car, shouts, show me your hands, show me your hands. And then you could see in a moment when, and this is a, a moment of contention, when Anthony Jose Vega Cruz continues to drive, that's when you see Officer Elysier fire a couple shots into the windshield. And, and the officer has gotten essentially in front of this vehicle, the vehicle starts moving toward him. And the point of contention you're talking about is that one way to look at this video is that the officer was fearful for his life. He was fearful that he was going to get run over by the driver. Another way to look at it is the driver was trying to flee and had no intention of of hitting the officer as he drove away. That's exactly right. And when we talked to Stephanie, because she was in the vehicle, you know, she was saying, you know, as they were pulled over, you know, she looked over to her boyfriend and he was like just quiet. Like he was, she says, I've never seen him so worried. And so in in her opinion, you know, her sense was that he took off because he was scared. And so when he was trying to get away, she describes it as him trying to get away and not trying to hit the officer. The, the officer fires the shots uh, through the driver's side window. Um, was he killed immediately? No, um, he died. So this happened on April 20th. He died on April 22nd. Vanessa, what happens next in this story? We have so many moving parts. Of course, we have the family, which is grieving. Um, We have the Wethersfield Police Department, which is fending off um, accusations from the family and others in the community about the policeman's actions here. What, What do we know happens next in this case? So right now, there's still an ongoing investigation um, being run by the Hartford State's attorney. So she's going to decide whether the use of force in this shooting was justified. And so once we learn that, whether um, Officer Elysier is cleared on that, that sort of determines some next steps. Say he is determined to have not been justified, then you might see some criminal charges. Um, regardless, it looks like the family of Anthony Jose Vega Cruz is going to sue the town of Wethersfield. I- I'm wondering if, as you've re- reported this story for this documentary over the course of the last several months, if there's anything that, you, that you've learned about this issue that maybe you, you hadn't thought about before, you didn't know before. What we ultimately came down with was a story of loss, of, of some regret, um, probably on both sides. And so I think that's what it comes down to, a local community that is, is grieving, and particularly this family, a local community that is fractured. Because when you talk to people in Wethersfield, you have people who say, why did this kid run? This wouldn't have happened if he had just complied with the traffic stop. You talk to other folks who are saying, you know what? If you're a black person or a minority in America, in Tulo's case, a Hispanic man, there's no guarantee that you're going to make it out of a traffic stop alive. So those are competing sort of mindsets, and they come to a head in Wethersfield. Vanessa Delatore is a reporter for Connecticut Public, and she's the lead reporter for this documentary. It's called Collision Course. You can find a link to the full film at our website, nenc.news. Uh, Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Back in 2012, Connecticut made changes to its anti-racial profiling law. The changes clarified the police departments cannot make traffic stops based solely on race. 
It also requires departments to track race for each traffic stop, and if they're disproportionately pulling over people of color, they could get penalized. Ken Barone is the project manager of the Racial Profiling Prohibition Project at Central Connecticut State University. They collect and analyze the data about traffic stops for Connecticut and Rhode Island. And he says that the Weathersfield Police Department is an outlier, disproportionately pulling over people of color. We have 107 police departments in Connecticut, and we evaluate everybody using the same measures. There's only one department in the state of Connecticut that has been identified with significant disparities across every measure um, that we've ever looked at. And there's only one department that's been identified in every analysis we've ever done, and that's the Weathersfield Police Department. But the department's police chief, James Satran, isn't having it. We don't have any racial, uh, um, any officers here that are racially profiling. If I did, I'd fire them. I don't want so I don't want the grief or something like that. I don't like that. That's unfair. It's not. It's not right. It's unjust. Ken Barone stands by his data, and he's here to talk about the research in Connecticut and other New England states. Ken, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I- I'm wondering if you can tell us about what we know about racial profiling in New England states outside of Connecticut. <clears throat> Uh, Good question. So um, Connecticut isn't the only state over the course of the last 20 years has been grappling with the issue of racial profiling. In fact, it's an issue that uh, most states across the country have tried to um, have tried to grapple with. And um, um, in the last five to seven years, Connecticut has really been leading the forefront in how to address the issue of racial profiling. Um, and, and we've really built the most uh, comprehensive uh, system for assessing racial disparities in police departments. Um, and, and because of the work we've done here in Connecticut, the state of Rhode Island um, um, asked us to roll out the same program in Rhode Island. And so Rhode Island um, um, has followed suit uh, back in 2015 and for the last four years. Um, they have been uh, also trying to better understand um, the degree to which race and ethnicity is playing a role in traffic enforcement. And uh, Massachusetts was one of the first states to really try and grapple with this issue, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, and more recently, the state of Vermont uh, has jumped on board with some researchers from the University of Vermont partnering with um, all the police departments in the state of Vermont to also do an assessment of traffic stops uh, there as well. What does this data collection look like? Maybe you can give us some specifics of, of what exactly you're, you're trying to, to find out more about. I think what every state is really interested in is um, a few things. One is, are, are black and Hispanic drivers disproportionately stopped? Are they disproportionately searched? And are they treated differently once they're stopped? Those, those tend to be the three basic questions that um, every state that does this work is interested in. And I think what we've seen, whether it's the research we've done or research that's been conducted in states like Massachusetts and Vermont um, over the course of the last few years, um, is, is there's a, a similar trend. Connecticut isn't an outlier. Rhode Island's not an outlier. Um, same with Massachusetts, Vermont as examples. Um, race and ethnicity are factors in stopping drivers, in searching drivers, and in, uh, in the treatment of drivers once they're stopped. Since you've been publishing your data and since these laws have changed requiring the collection of this data, have you seen some municipalities uh, that have really taken this information and said, yeah, we're going to change. We're going to do something and, and police <coughs> differently. 
So we have some really good news here in Connecticut, and I think it's because we've been doing this work longer here, and I, I feel as though we'll see the same thing in a year or two occurring in Rhode Island. So in Connecticut, since we started this work, we've identified 32 individual departments as outliers at some point over the course of the last four years. And we've gone in and worked with those departments to try and figure out what exactly caused them to be an outlier in that specific year. And out of those 32 departments, pretty much uh, 31 of them um, have um, made some change to the way in which they police to try and address their disparity. And what we've seen is that um, the disparities that we identified in all of those departments have either gotten smaller or disappeared. And um, last year, uh, when we released our analysis, it was the first time in four years where we did not identify a statewide disparity um, in the state of Connecticut. Um, and um, um, that, to me, is good news. Now, we're, we're still uh, waiting to figure out if that's an outlier and if that trend will continue, which I believe it will. Um, and if that trend continues, then what that tells me is that enough departments have made um, um, enough changes to the way in which they're policing that we're starting to see the impact statewide. And we're starting to see less of a disproportionate um, pattern of stopping, searching, um, and detaining drivers um, here in Connecticut. And, and I attribute that entirely to the changes that are being made uh, from those departments that we've identified in the past. You said you work with these departments that, that may be seen as outliers. What does that work look like? Uh, what do you go and tell them? So the process we have in place in Connecticut is that we analyze every department uh, and, and in Rhode Island now um, seven different ways. We then identify those departments that are outliers, and then we meet with them. Mm -hmm. And we say, okay, here's the deal. We've identified you as having outliers, and let's walk through where those where those disparities are. W one of the suburban communities you mentioned was Newington, Connecticut. It's it's right next door to to Weathersfield, Connecticut, just outside of of Hartford. What have they done differently? So Newington was a department that we had identified um, in one of the early reports that we published um, statewide. And uh, like all the departments we identified, we went and we met with the uh, police uh, administrators and we um, tried to drill down and understand what was driving the disparity in their community. Um, and one of the things that stood out to us was the degree to which um, the Newington Police Department stopped drivers for um, lower level equipment violations. Um, and just to put that in context, about 10% of stops conducted in the state of Connecticut are for some sort of an equipment violation, a headlight out, a taillight out, a license plate light out. Um, in, in Newington, that was closer to 30%. And so as a researcher, that stood out. Uh, and what we, what we noticed was that the vast majority of those stops were impacting um, minority drivers. And so we wanted to try and understand um, why that was occurring. And so the department had sort of come to us and said, well, you know, this is really part of our roving DUI patrol. And what we found was um, out of 1,608 drivers stopped for uh, an equipment violation in Newington during that study year, um, they had only uh, arrested one drunk driver. And so uh, one of the areas that the department was able to focus on was, you know, what strategies can they put in place that will reduce the racial uh, impact on their community while increasing the number of drunk drivers that they capture. And that meant focusing on the violations where they were uh, where it was proven that they would actually um, be able to, to uh, have a higher likelihood of, of identifying a drunk driver. 
Uh, Ken Barone is project manager of the Racial Profiling Prohibition Project at Central Connecticut State University. Ken, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, a woman is held in the emergency room for 20 days because of a shortage of mental health beds in New Hampshire. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. As Massachusetts considers changing the way it handles young criminal offenders, it's looking at what's happening to the North, specifically to Vermont. Vermont's the first state to raise the age above 18 for when someone criminally charged goes to juvenile court rather than adult court. WBUR's Deborah Becker recently went to Vermont to talk about what that means. In a small office in a nondescript government building in Burlington, a seemingly routine meeting takes place involving a 21-year-old man and his probation officer. We meet once a month and we talk about my life and how I can put my path in the right direction. The man was convicted of driving under the influence. He doesn't want his name used because once he completes probation and turns 22, the charge will no longer be on his record. If they did send me to the criminal side, adult side, I would have a record. It would mess up my life for as long as I live. This is how Vermont now handles some of the criminal cases involving people considered emerging adults. It's a term describing those between the ages of 18 and 25 years old. Karen Bastine with Vermont's Department of Children and Families says putting these kinds of cases in the juvenile rather than the adult criminal justice systems means more flexibility and more support for younger offenders. Their probation officer will do a lot more for them. So, for instance, for a 35-year-old, they may have a requirement that they have to get a job. But what you're going to see with a probation officer for an emerging adult is that they're actually going to help them map the steps that they need to take to get to the job. Now, Vermont is going even further with its emerging adults. Next year, it becomes the first state that will keep most criminal cases in juvenile court for those up to age 19. Two years later, it goes up to age 20. That means those charged will have access to youth programming, and if incarcerated, they would be confined in youth facilities instead of with adults. There are exceptions for 12 serious crimes. Bastine is leading the efforts to implement the change. 18 and 19-year-olds, they're actually not that different than their 16 and 17-year-old counterparts. And we know that uh, generally um, emerging adults grow out of impulsive behavior. In the last fiscal year, more than 600 criminal cases in Vermont involved 18- and 19-year-olds. More than half of them either paid fines or went through a diversion program. Bastine is using those numbers to coordinate the details and the costs of the change. She's expected to provide a report on that to lawmakers next month. 
She says studies of young offenders in Vermont show lower recidivism rates for those who were handled in juvenile versus adult court. Marshall Paul, chief juvenile defender for Vermont, says any higher initial costs will likely pay off. Yes, there is a resource cost up front, but I think it'll be no time at all before we're seeing the payoff in the form of reduced rates of recidivism. Vermont prosecutors appear to be on board with the change as well. Bennington County State Attorney Erica Marthage says raising the age does not mean that young offenders will get off easy, but will get more supervision from the juvenile system. A lot of the people that are concerned about this legislation are thinking like, oh my God, juvenile court, thats they're just getting a pass. That ain't it. <laughs> that's not what I have in mind. What I have in mind is no, now we're going to be holding you accountable. But some Massachusetts prosecutors don't seem ready for this type of change. When lawmakers here were working on criminal justice reform in 2017, nine district attorneys signed a letter saying that new juvenile brain development science does not warrant raising the age. They also wrote that the change would make young offenders less legally accountable. Cape and Islands District Attorney Michael O'Keefe, who declined to go on tape for this story, says he does not support raising the age. I take issue with the district attorneys. Massachusetts Senator Cynthia Stone Cream is co-chair of the Emerging Adults in the Criminal Justice System Task Force. It's looking into raising the age in this state. In other countries, they don't incarcerate juveniles. In other countries, other than the U.S., they treat juveniles. They realize that juveniles should be treated differently. You know, we spend so much money on our prison system. Are we just going to spend more money making more prisons, or are we going to find a way to keep people out of prison? Lawmakers in other states like Connecticut and Illinois are formally considering raising the age legislation. Lael Chester, who directs the Emerging Adult Justice Project at Columbia University's Justice Lab, says in part more states are thinking about the change because our culture has changed. I think there was an aha moment when they realized, oh, (laughs) there's no magic birthday. 18-year-olds don't suddenly become independent, mature adults. It's actually quite a long transition, and you see that with things like, you know, rates of marriage, uh, steady employment, uh, are all happening much later in this generation than past generation, and yet we treat them just like a 30-, 40-, 50-year-old, right? If they uh, are allegedly committed offense, couldn't we do better? The Massachusetts Task Force is trying to answer that question. It's been meeting since January and is expected to make recommendations to the legislature by the end of the year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Deborah Becker. Imagine you're forced to go to a hospital to receive psychiatric treatment that you don't think you need. What rights would you have? That's the question at the heart of a legal battle between the state of New Hampshire, the ACLU, and nearly two dozen hospitals. A ruling in the case could have profound impacts on how New Hampshire treats people who are in a mental health crisis. As NHPR's Jason Moon reports, the case involves a group of mostly anonymous plaintiffs who are confined in hospital emergency departments. Mimi is 61. She works for an organization that helps people with disabilities and takes care of her husband, who is disabled. Mimi is a family nickname. We're not using her real name because she's afraid of the stigma that might follow someone who's been involuntarily committed for a mental illness. The events that led to Mimi being taken to a hospital are disputed. It happened last September. Mimi says she was suffering from severe stress and anxiety at work and at home. It was just a perfect storm of stressors 
So I had taken the day off and um, I was recovering at home. Later, Mimi's adult daughter arrived at her house and was alarmed by Mimi's condition. Mimi's daughter later described it as a, quote, psychotic break. But Mimi didn't think she needed any help. They argued. Then Mimi's daughter called 911. When police arrive, they find Mimi agitated and erratic. They say she isn't making any sense. Ultimately, they tell her she has to go to the hospital. Mimi refuses. I definitely did not need to go. I did not want to go. Then an EMT tells police officers to hold down Mimi's arms. And the next thing I know, they're stabbing me in the arms with some kind of sedative. I don't know. Stab, stab. Next thing I'm waking up in St. Joseph's Hospital. Mimi wakes up in the St. Joseph Hospital emergency room in Nashua. She wants to leave, but the hospital won't let her. The reason they can legally hold her against her will is a special petition that was filled out by Mimi's daughter and an ER doctor. That form lays out the reasons why they each think Mimi is suffering from a mental illness that makes her a danger to herself or others. My husband came and he tried to get me out, but there was no getting me out. After one of those petitions is filed, according to state law, a few things are supposed to happen. First, Mimi should be transferred out of St. Joseph to a psychiatric care facility. Second, within three days, Mimi should get a hearing before a judge. That will be her chance to argue that she shouldn't be held against her will. But here's the problem. There are five psychiatric care facilities in New Hampshire where Mimi could be transferred, and they are all full. On any given day, there is a wait list of around 35 people for a bed. And those hearings where Mimi could argue to a judge that she should be allowed to go home, those are only held at those psychiatric facilities. So Mimi can't leave the ER, and she can't get a hearing, not until a bed opens up. And they won't even tell you what number you are. You ask every day, what number am I? Oh, we don't know. The legality of this situation is now being debated in federal court. The question is not whether Mimi should have been forced to come to this emergency department in the first place. It's about whether her rights were violated once she got there. Mimi ended up spending 20 days locked inside a wing of the St. Joseph Hospital Emergency Department. Her clothes were paper hospital gowns. Her access to visitors, the telephone, and even the bathroom were limited. During my stay to help keep me sane, I took uh, notes with a crayon and coloring papers because that's the only thing I was allowed to have to write with. Pens were deemed a potential suicide risk. And so in crayon, Mimi kept a sort of diary of what she says was a traumatizing captivity. She writes about hospital staff who were demeaning. Staff call the mental side of the ER the slums. Are you slumming it? They'd ask each other. She writes about the anxiety of not knowing how long she would be there. Still waiting for the phone and still waiting on what number of when I'm getting out of here. She writes about how a priest affiliated with the hospital gave her a prayer shawl, but then the hospital staff took it away. Um, There are premises that I could have strangled myself with it. Mimi says she never had any suicidal thoughts. A spokesperson for St. Joseph Hospital wouldn't comment on the specifics of Mimi's experience, but in a legal filing, the hospital denies any allegations that the conditions of her stay were poor. On the 20th day, Mimi says she's eating lunch when a pair of sheriff's deputies arrive in her room. A bed at a psychiatric facility has finally opened up. She says they handcuff her, put her in a wheelchair, put her in the back of a van, and then drive her to New Hampshire Hospital in Concord. 
Two days later, Mimi is told she's finally going to get her hearing. You get your husband to bring you your finest dress, and you go in there, you get, um, get a lawyer as assigned to you. In the end, Mimi didn't even have to argue that she should be released. Mimi's daughter, who had written the petition to involuntarily commit her, she didn't show for the hearing. The judge dismissed the petition, and Mimi was immediately released. For the first time in more than three weeks, she got to go home. Later, Mimi received a bill from St. Joseph Hospital for the cost of her stay, about $2,700. Now Mimi is represented by the ACLU of New Hampshire in a federal class action lawsuit. Gilles Bissonnette with the ACLU says they want to make sure people like Mimi get a probable cause hearing within three days of being confined, regardless of whether they're at a psychiatric care facility or an emergency room. To be deprived of your liberty without any ability to challenge it, it's wrong. It's wrong under our statutes. It's wrong under our Constitution. uh, And that's what we're trying to fix in our lawsuit. No one from the state attorney general's office or the Department of Health and Human Services would comment on pending litigation. But in its legal filing, the state argues that the clock for the three-day requirement for a probable cause hearing doesn't start until the patient arrives at a state psychiatric facility. The state also argues that hospitals aren't required by law to hold patients like Mimi. In other words, the state says this is between Mimi and the hospital. Steve Onan is president of the New Hampshire Hospital Association. His organization has intervened in this case on behalf of more than 20 hospitals in the state. He says stories like Mimi's are a result of the state's failure to follow its own laws. When a petition for involuntary emergency admission is completed, the patient is committed to the state's mental health system and is to be transferred immediately. Anand says the moment the petition against Mimi was filed, the state became responsible for her. But while the hospital association largely agrees with the ACLU, they differ on what the immediate solution should be. The ACLU has floated the idea of holding probable cause hearings by video conference inside emergency departments, but hospitals aren't in favor. They say that would create more of a burden on hospital emergency departments, which were never designed to handle these situations. It would simply perpetuate uh, a failure of the system to, to do what the system is supposed to do, which is to provide care for patients who need it. One thing everyone agrees on is that this problem is not new. What happened to Mimi has been happening to people in New Hampshire for years now. Right now, there are somewhere around 35 patients being held in emergency rooms across the state on involuntary petitions. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jason Moon. Coming up, three comedians from Massachusetts tap their Portuguese-American background for material. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. We're going to wrap up the show today with an episode of the podcast Mosaic from the Publix Radio. Mosaic is about the American immigrant experience and it's hosted by Ana Gonzalez and Alex Nunes. And we'll let them take it from here. All right. So six or seven years ago, my Uncle Joe sends around this email to my whole family. And in it, he says, you guys got to check out this video. Get off my grass. And this one was called Portuguese People Say. 
And I bet it was extra funny for you, right? Because you're Portuguese. I am. It's after 10 o'clock. So the video my uncle sent around was this montage of different skits. A few had Portuguese people driving in cars and getting into arguments. Okay, yeah, go. Put your blink on. I don't see your blink. Then there were Portuguese people ordering at drive throughs That was my personal favorite. E um large potato french fry e um chicken McNugget. Ah, uh, yes. Can I have a large diet black soda with white ice, please? And I thought this video was hilarious, like really spot on. The accents, the outfits, the guys in a few skits were dressed up like my grandma. You hungry? Want to eat something? So skinny. So you come to find out that the guys behind the video are called the Portuguese Kids, which is a comedy group from Fall River, Massachusetts. Just a quick ride from our studios in Providence. Yeah. And they've built like this crazy career out of being Portuguese comedians, like doing that as their main thing, making these videos, traveling around, doing all these live shows. Right. And in this episode of Mosaic, we set out to find out who these guys are, how they wind up doing what they're doing, and why they like dressing up like Portuguese grandmas. Derek DeMello describes his childhood as a Venn diagram with these three circles. There was the first circle for his parents, hardworking, church-going, money-saving Portuguese immigrants from the Azores. Then there was a circle for everything else, everything American. TV, sports, movies, video games, school, dating. And the final circle was Derek. The two other worlds always overlapped with his circle, but they didn't have much in common with each other. Sleeping over a friend's house. My parents never let me do that. Just foreign to them. They were like, no, we don't trust other people. <laughs> you know, just as simple as that. You know, like, yeah, no sleepovers for you. Put it this way. Just because everyone's doing it has no consequence to my parents. Like, they don't care about me looking uncool. You know, to them, it was like, who cares? American families ate pizza and Chinese food. Derek's family ate caldver soup and bifana pork sandwiches. Then there was the pop culture all around Derek. Right. Kids on TV shows talked to their parents about their feelings. And families did group hugs at the end of each episode. Think Seventh Heaven. Right. And then in Derek's case, if he broke something around the house or he's being wise to his parents, he got smacked with a slipper or a wooden spoon. And then there were all those expensive gifts American kids seem to get every Christmas. The gifts Derek didn't get. I would come home and be like, Ma, like, I want Jordan sneakers. Okay? You think I got a pair of Jordan sneakers? <laughs> Hell to the no. You think my mom would drop... I mean, back then, Jordans were like 75 bucks. You think my mom would drop $75 on sneakers? My parents literally... I grew up thinking we were the poorest people in the world. Eventually, that Portuguese thrift would give Derek some of his best material. Hey y'all, it's Derek with Tech Talk, and today we're unboxing the new iPhone 10, and I am super pumped. We've got the silver 256 gigabyte unit here. Oh, uh, that's what hey. are you doing? Oh, hey, Dad, I'm just doing a, you know, my Tech Talk video. Where'd you get the money for this? Dad, I... I... Well, you put it on the credit card? You already have four credit cards. What is this, credit card number five? $1,000 for a cell phone, Derek? You still live at home? You tell Daddy and Mommy you can't move out because you don't have money? You got it! You're good. Are you going to sleep on top of this phone? Derek grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, the most Portuguese place in the United States. Literally and statistically, the most Portuguese place in America. Some people describe the neighborhood Derek lived in 
as a village in the Azores that was literally lifted up and set down in Fall River. It was hard-pressed growing up to, to feel cool being Portuguese because you didn't have anything representing you as being cool. This is Al Sardina, Derek's best friend. They've known each other for longer than either of them can remember. Portuguese representation, in my experience growing up, was very cultural and traditionally based. So it was like, um, you know, uh, fado singers. <laughs> Growing up, Al and Derek don't really have these visible Portuguese celebrities or public people to look up to. But at the same time, they really felt like they were performers. Yeah, they were. So Al was always good with a quick one-liner, and he loved entertaining his family. I used to mimic my grandmother a lot. Time to make some soupish. In Derek's case, he says he took pride in being the funny guy in the room. It was always a way to make friends and deflect bullies. He is the most Portuguese man in the world. I don't always eat fish, but when I do, it's bacalhau. I was a fat kid, you know, and I definitely used, you know, my sense of humor to kind of like help me out of so many situations, you know. I was always a big chubby kid, and it was just because my mom's such a bomb cook, you know, like she was just making the best Portuguese food growing up. So it's all your fault that I'm fat, mom. <laughs> my mom hates when I say that. She's like, stop it. So Derek and Al are these irreverent kids. They see humor everywhere growing up. They're jokesters. They poke fun at their families. And when they get to high school, they become really inseparable friends, and they start to dabble in comedy really as an art form. Al gets into playing the guitar. He's trying to write these Adam Sandler-type comedy songs, including one quintessentially Fall River tune about cruising the Ave. Cruising around on Plymouth Avenue, trying to pick up some wicked good chicks. They also start shooting funny videos with their friends on Al's sister's camcorder. I got your back. Calabunga! And when they graduate from high school, they both enroll at Bristol Community College, and they start taking video production classes. At BCC, they meet this professor who runs the local public access station based at the school, and he asks them if they want a spot on TV. Their best friend, Brian Martins, picks up the story from here. Derek and Al came back. We're like, hey, we have an opportunity to jump on public access you guys want to make these videos and, and and make it for them and we were like yeah you know we've been doing this forever you know let's let's try it out and uh you know they were they were bad they say dancing is a sport i dare you say that to my face you making fun of me son are you making fun of me son because i don't take liking that type of crap in my classroom all right i'm the boss in this room so Derek sent me some of the uh, videos. Some of the videos, yeah. There's one of you being a dance instructor. Oh, my God. Yeah. I dance. Therefore, I dance. A little embarrassing now, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, true. So they called their show Ludicrous Speed, a reference to the movie Spaceballs. The stories weren't really scripted. There were a lot of inside jokes there and some pretty crude stuff yeah one skit was called you're in trouble uh that was mostly about pee (laughs) 
But they also started doing some bits about growing up as the children of Portuguese immigrants. Once in a while, we would throw in these pieces called Portuguese Americana, which uh, were more, probably our most popular. We would show, for example, a car accident sketch that was based on something that happened to me. And what happens when an American family, would, how they would deal with this car accident, where the dad was very you know, thoughtful and, and thinking about the son's good health and making sure he was okay. Oh my God, is that my Celica? Yeah, I'm really sorry that it was an accident. That deer came out and I lost control. Son, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, but the car, it's wet. Shh, son, that car is only worth $3,000. You're worth more to me than that, son. Then showing the Portuguese version, which happened with my dad, where, you know, he was like, I paid all this money for the car. Were you not paying attention? Were you playing with the radio? Like, it was my fault and not the fact that, like, you know, I hit a deer on the highway. I crashed your car. Oh, my God! Oh, Jesus Christ! Why you do this for me, Pa? Why you do this for me? Oh, oh, oh your daddy's going to have a heart attack. Oh, shh. Dad, you're not having a heart attack. Be quiet, please. They weren't on air for long when the show started getting kind of big for public access. Yeah, the guys would go around town in Fall River, and people would actually come up to them and say stuff like, Hey, we love Portuguese Americana. But then something got in the way. About a year and a half in, we got into what we call, and I'm putting quotes in the air, uh, season two of this TV show, Ludicrous Speed. And we, we were, I think across the board, we were all kind of getting this, this sort of pressure from our significant others at the time. Like all of the girls across the board were like, you know, what, what, what's the end game here? Like, what's the point of this? It's public access. Okay, big deal. Like, <laughs> what's the point? Their girlfriends wanted them to get serious jobs. Yeah, so the pressure mounted, and then Derek sat everyone down for this serious talk. I remember being in Derek's, uh, in, his, in his bedroom, in his mom's basement, and he's like, guys, uh, we're not going to keep, we're, 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 this is going to end. We're not going to do ludicrous speed anymore. This is, this is going to be the end. And that was it. The guys aired what they'd recorded already, and then they moved on. Al landed a job as a stock trader in Boston. It was a shot at something stable, a job he could do for years. And I hated it. (laughs) I didn't care about other people's money. I didn't care about investments. It just wasn't my game. But he started making friends in Boston. And then one day, Al was hanging out in the north end of the city when he found out about a place called Improv Asylum. It was a comedy theater where you could also take classes. He told Derek about it, and then they started looking into it. That kind of rekindled this idea of us being this group. And it wasn't going to be ludicrous speed anymore. It wasn't going to be, you know, filming things in our basement and putting it up on public access. But it was this opportunity to do it on a more professional level. They had to practice, script scenes, build sets. It was a lot of work. But they wanted to make jobs out of being live comedy performers. So they put in the time. In October 2004, Al, Derek, Brian, and some other friends were ready to stage their first show. Mom, Dad, as you know, Jenny and I have been going out for quite a long time now. Yeah, yeah. She's not Portuguese. (laughs) But uh, she's a nice girl. That night, Al and his friends did a mix of goofball comedy with some observational stuff, too. 
They also decided to add in some Portuguese Americana style skits. And that was what got the biggest laughs. Later, they decided their best work and their best shot at a viable business was to focus exclusively on Portuguese comedy. So they did. And they took a new name, the Portuguese Kids. When I was a little boy, my vovo never bought me toys. She had soap popsicles she gave to me and told me to play with my shirties. My shirties too. Fifteen years on, this is their full-time job. Al, Derek, and Brian split their time 50-50 between Fall River and traveling to shows at theaters and Portuguese clubs around the U.S., in Canada, and even to Australia and Portugal. Wherever there are Portuguese people, they go. Where the hell have you been? Tell me! We ran a little bit late! Jesus! (laughs) Don't give me your attitude, okay? What time did your father ask you to come home today? Are we really going to do this right now, Daddy? What time? <sighs> 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. And what time is it now? It's midnight. Midnight o'clock. Wow. Al, Derek, and Brian say all of their parents have seen their shows. Their mothers are known to sit together in the front row and talk endlessly to each other throughout the performance. I like the one they're singing. I'm Portuguese and I know it. <laughs> That's sketch. I like that one. That's Derek's mom, Anna. She's talking about her favorite Portuguese kids' video. Can you sing it? <laughs> no, I don't know how to sing that. <laughs> no, no, like that. I think you know it. I know, of course, yeah. I'm Portuguese and I know it. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I, I, I work a lot. Yeah, I work second shift. Seven days a week, I own a single family house and three rental properties. I got money in the bank, because I'm never going to show it. I'm Portuguese and I know it. That's the Portuguese Kids, featured on the podcast Mosaic from the Public Radio. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia, and the executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week from Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Dave Richardson, and Njimali. I'm John Dankosky. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public Radio. Radio.